This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Danielle Laporte, and I'm here with Linda Sievertson, where we are chatting with some of the most amazing authors, publishing leaders, and creatives. Between the two of us, Linda and I have written something like 12 books, including our co-creation, Your Big Beautiful Book Plan. And we're here because we love this game. We love everything about the publishing industry, about getting ideas out into the world and being as creative as you possibly can. This all started with us interviewing some of our favorite agents and fellow authors for a membership group that we have called the Beautiful Writers Group. And because we don't believe friends should let their friends write alone, we are sharing the interviews with you. So for the next 45 minutes, because 45 minutes is a new hour, we will be digging deep and going for the light. Welcome. This is Linda Sievertson, and today Danielle and I have the truly goosebumply pleasure to interview Seth Godin, one of the world's most successful authors and bloggers. Seth has written 18 international bestsellers that have been translated into over 35 languages and have changed the way people think about marketing and work. For a long time, Unleashing the Idea Virus was the most popular ebook ever published, and Purple Cow is the best-selling marketing book of the last decade. Other bestsellers include Permission Marketing, All Marketers Are Liars, Small is the New Big, The Dip, Tribes, Lynchpin, Poke the Box. Seth has an MBA in marketing from Stanford. He's been a CEO, a book packager, and sold a business that he started for $20,000 for $30 million. In other words, we have a lot to learn from this man who lives in New York with his wife and their two sons and is well-rumored because we have a mutual friend to have a huge compassionate heart that is as large, if not larger, than his masterful brain. Thank you so much, Seth, for being here. Danielle and I are true blue fans. Thank you for that intro. And the last part of it was my favorite. (laughs) And Linda made a new word. Goosebumply. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was wondering if you would notice that, Danielle. All right. We always start with an invocation. So wherever you are, even if you're driving, you can take a deep breath. It goes like this. We're here now to give witness to a shared truth that absolutely everything is progress, that we have all that we need, and that brilliance is unfolding. And by brilliance, we mean light. And so it is. Mm. Thank you for being here. All right, Seth, I would love to start off talking about tribes, since this podcast is a result of a tribe that Danielle and I started called the Beautiful Writers Group. We have a couple of hundred people in our group that support each other's creative process. Can you elaborate on how you see tribes evolving now in marketing? So I define a tribe as a group of people who share a goal, a mission, a culture, a way of being, maybe a leader. You can tell when you find one. You can tell when you're in one. They're a little squishy to define. Tribes are often misused by demagogues, by politicians, by people who would play us off against one another. You and I are talking on Martin Luther King's birthday. I can think of no more magical, powerful, important tribe than the one he organized shortly after I was born. This idea that together we can make a change happen is more powerful than it has ever been because it is easier to organize people to be we than ever before. Mm. But at the same time, this magical engine that's letting the three of us talk when we're not in the same room also means that 
the culture of the earth is more uniform than it has ever been in history. So we have two things going on at the same time. More people who speak the same language and have the same goals contrasted with these tribes, macro tribes, micro tribes, urgent tribes, less urgent tribes that are fractionalizing culture around the edges and are working to sort of make change happen. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Seth, where do you feel mostly useful? You're just like, let me at them because I've got just what they need. There's leverage here. You're lit up. Even if it feels like preaching to the choir. You know, there's a lot to be said for choirs and there's a lot to be said for preaching to them. Uh, One thing that marketers and writers miss so often is they get so hung up on trying to find the new audience, the new field, the new opportunity that they forget that the hard work of earning the trust and attention of the people who are already in the game should not be overlooked. I decided five years ago to stop looking for new readers, to stop evangelizing to new people, because I discovered that the people who were already interested and doing the work were enough. And that changed my writing. It changed my life. It made it easier for me to make the change I want to make happen. There's so many strangers you can now accost, and (laughs) accosting strangers is hardly worth it. Yes, you know, I'm in that same place where I'm just like, we just want to take care of our friends. And if that circle grows, that's wonderful. But like, these people showed up, let's respect them. Let's, it just, for me, is the most loving thing to do is just concentrate on who showed up already. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Seth, we're assembling our tribe. We're feeling good. We're getting ready to put our work out in a bigger way. And much like Stephen Pressfield's idea of resistance, which I know you love. You say that our greatest fear is the fear of criticism. So how does this fear stop most creativity, and what can the average person do about it? Well, as usual, I'll question the question. You slipped in there, we're feeling good. Oh. Um, <laughs> Ooh, whoops. The leaders I know don't slip the word, I'm feeling good, in the middle of that sentence. Interesting. Uh, in the moments before we do important work, we are almost never feeling good. Oh, I uh, love it. We are, Thank you. We are feeling afraid. We are feeling trepidation. While I may have said our biggest fear is the fear of criticism, what I meant to say was our biggest fear is the fear of death. And the problem with criticism is criticism is only one step from death. Because what happens is we do work, someone doesn't like it, They criticize it. Everyone realizes that we are a fraud. The word spreads. We never get another gig again. People ignore us and we die alone. (laughs) So criticism is not that far away. So the successful authors I know and the successful authors you know, when they're telling the truth, will talk about the fact that they were reading their negative reviews on Amazon yesterday. (laughs) I haven't read a review on Amazon in four years. And it's a discipline. And the reason I do it was I realized... It wasn't making my writing better, and it was making me unhappy. Yeah. And I have never met an author who could honestly say that reading all their negative reviews made them a better writer. It doesn't. <laughs> so what we have to do is, A, give up on this idea that we're going to feel good before we do that thing that matters, because we probably won't. And the second thing we have to do is stop fighting the fear, stop trying to make the resistance go away. It cannot be done. All we can do is dance with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You were one of the reasons, you were the reason why I decided four or five years ago to shut comments off. 
on my website because you had said something like, you know, if you comment because I'm wired the way I'm wired, I will want to engage. I will go away and think about what you've said. So it's better for me to just focus on my work. And I just, yes, I'm human. I'm going to go away and think about what you said. I was listening to an interview this weekend with Eckhart Tolle and Tammy Simon, who, you know, is the founder of Sounds True. And yes, she, she's a good friend. She's wonderful. She's a, yeah, and, she, you know, she is tough in interviews. She's interviewed me. I'm like, Tammy, like, you published my book. Like, go easy on me. But she was like, get there. <laughs> and she asked Eckhart if he would describe himself because of his level of consciousness, where he's at, you know, if he would describe himself as an evolutionary mutant. Mm. And he said yes. And of course, you know, just this beautifully whole answer. The answer is, yes, I'm an evolutionary mutant, but not sort of in that X-Men sense where, you know, mutants are superior and everybody (laughs) has to catch up. And I just thought, you know, I was thinking about you this morning and I just thought, maybe evolutionary mutant is the polar divine opposite of lizard brain. Do you think that's like... (laughs) And if that's the case, like what everybody wants to know is how do I go from lizard brain to even in the realm, the ballpark of evolutionary awesome mutant? How do you get there? <laughs> All right. Well, you're touching a whole bunch of my hot buttons and I'm not going to walk away, though I should. Here's the deal. Evolution is science and there's a lot to it. And we have to be very careful about not being glib about what we mean. There's cultural evolution and there's physical evolution. We are almost physically identical to people from 1,000 or 2,000 years ago. Culturally, we keep evolving, and we're evolving fast on the cultural front. An idea goes into the world. If it succeeds, it spreads. If it doesn't, the memes in that idea go away. Now, as humans, all of us, except sociopaths, have an active lizard brain, an amygdala, an alert system that floods our brain with chemicals when we are afraid. And I don't know anybody who doesn't have one. What I do know is that we are able, because of culture, to build support systems around us where we can put that to use and not have to run screaming like some person in the Poseidon adventure. (laughs) What we can do is say, inside of me, I want nothing more than to run and run and run. I will use those chemicals to do something useful instead. And for me, and I don't know Eckhart, so I can't speak for him, but what we ought to be able to do is say, it's raining, and maybe it's okay that I don't have an umbrella. What will I do anyway? Mm. And they call it singing in the rain because the rain is the point. If it wasn't raining, there'd be no singing. And the same thing is true with writer's block. The same thing is true with the fear of public speaking. The same thing is true of our inability to look someone in the eye and tell them the truth. All of those things are hardwired into us, but professionals figure out how to use that as fuel, not to whine about it, but to do something useful with it. So Seth, you're very prolific. So when you're not in the mood to create, do you force the issue and focus on doing work worth doing, or do you play hooky? How do you handle it? I'm trying to remember the last time I was in the mood to create. I don't think... (laughs) I don't think that comes up very often (laughs) for for people who do it professionally. You know, I had knee surgery last month, and I did not ask the surgeon if he was in the mood Mm, to remove part of my meniscus. (laughs) 
right? You don't want to just have surgery when the guy's in a good mood. You want him to be good at surgery all the time. Nice. So I think we make a mistake if we call ourselves a writer and then talk about how we need to find the right emotional moment (laughs) to do our writing. (laughs) What we need to do is write and then write some more. And if we are any good at it, we will edit later by throwing out the stuff that doesn't sing. Mm -hmm. But if this was easy, everyone would do it and they would do it well. The fact that it's hard makes it worth doing. And you don't have to do it 24 hours a day. Three hours a day would be plenty, but you have to do it regardless of what mood you're in. Love Mm it. Seth, are you a meditator, a prayer? I mean, where, where this is going is like, do you have a sort of contemplative practice before you sit to write? But I want to know more in general sort of what that looks like for you. I do have a practice. I've been practicing mindfulness since 1980 or 82 when my dad started talking about the, a book called The Relaxation Response. And I don't do it in a way that anyone who adheres to any specific practice would admire. Um, <laughs> but I notice things for a living. That's what I do. And I try very hard to be aware of my narrative. And it's the narrative that gets so many people in trouble. And we end up falling into the trap of believing the narrative and fueling the narrative. The narrative of unfairness or the narrative of good luck or the narrative of anything we want in our head about that person or that event or that thing that is keeping us from making the change we seek. And I find I can do my very best work with a fresh narrative, with a blank slate of a narrative, where I can form a new explanation for what's happening to me and the world around me. So you have said that most products will be ignored. So even when you get negative attention, it can be a positive thing because you've done something worth remarking on. Any caveats to that, or do you still feel that way? Well, there are two ideas there. The first one is this. There's cultural pressure in the narrative in your head to fit in. We've been taught to fit in, particularly women, from a very early age. And it's easy to stop yourself in your tracks to say, well, I should smooth out this edge. I should explain this idea. Mm -hmm. I should do this because someone else might not get the joke. Mm -hmm. And my first point is you can do all of those things, but if you're not a Fortune 500 company with the wherewithal to force your banality, your mediocrity on the world, no one's going to engage with it because Mm -hmm. we don't need more average. We need more stuff on the edges because it's only the people on the edges that are looking. If you don't have a book problem, you're not in the bookstore. And if you don't have a yoga pants problem, you're not looking for (laughs) yoga pants. (laughs) So you need to make something that people who have a problem are looking to buy, which means that most people don't need it, don't want it, don't care. But that's fine Because you don't need most people, you just need some people. Part B, though, is that one of the costs of being right is that some people will think you are wrong. That's the opposite of being ignored. If you are ignored, no one will think you are wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So when you see a negative review, you don't look at that and say, oh, good news, I made something that some people hate. But you do say... Good news, I made something important, and I accept that one of the side effects of making something important is that some people aren't going to get the joke. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel about 
your past work. Like Linda and I are always joking that I look at everything that I wrote before today, <laughs> even talks I've given. I'm just like, could have been better, want to burn it, want to go to the Ganges, shave my head and start all over. Linda looks at her stuff and says, that was good. That was what awesome was at that time. I'm going to keep making stuff. And it works for both of us to propel us to make more stuff. How do you regard everything before today? <laughs> okay, so I was a game designer before I was anything else. I went to see Star Wars yesterday, and I was reminded mm-hmm. that when I was 16, I made a game on the mainframe computer at my high school of Star Wars. No way. Uh, and making games is about solving the problem in the moment. So if I'm giving a speech to 400 people who you know, make curtains and wall hangings, that's a problem that can be solved in an interesting way. Now, if I watch that speech three years from now, could I say to myself, knowing what I know now, I would have done it differently? Well, of course I can. The same way if you look at all the cards in a poker game at the end of the game, you could probably have made your bets differently. But that's not what we do. I often encounter things I wrote or said decades ago, didn't know it was me, and will say something like, oh, that's interesting, because (laughs) um, it makes me happy to think that I figured out a clever solution to the problem in that moment. Mm. Um, So there's very little that I've published in the world or blog posts that I've done where I say, I'm ashamed of that. Shame is a dream killer. Shame is the thing that will put out our fire. Everything I've ever done, I have said, if I could edit it one more time, I could make it even better. But, and it's a huge but, the time I would have spent doing that is the time that would have taken away today's blog post. I'm glad I I wrote today's blog post. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Seth, Mm -hmm. you've uh, launched the most successful Kickstarter campaign ever for a book. What have you learned and what would you do differently? You know, some people looked at that, it was almost four years ago. Some people looked at that three and said, wow, look at that. He hit his goal in three hours and he maxed out in like two days. And the answer is, no, I didn't. I hit my goal in nine years. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It was nine years of showing up every day and nine years of contributing and nine years of noticing things that earned me the privilege of being able to whisper Hey, I have a Kickstarter. And a lot of people view Kickstarter not as a slightly powerful amplifying technology, but as a solution to their problem. And it is not. Do you still recommend? But the challenge we have going forward are trust and attention. And if you don't have trust and you don't have attention, Kickstarter is not going to solve any of your problems. Yeah. Do you still recommend that some people publish traditionally? Oh, yeah. There's no question about it. What book publishing does is book publishing is the act. It's not has nothing to do with paper and nothing to do with printing. Book publishing is the act of bringing someone else's idea to people who don't know about it but will be glad to have heard about it after they encounter it. Mm-hmm. That's really difficult, really expensive, really time-consuming. If you can find someone talented and passionate who will pay you money in advance For the privilege of doing that for you, Mm -hmm. I strongly suggest you explore the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Seth, what do you look for in an editor? Well, different people need different kinds of editors. So we need to distinguish between line editing, copy editing, project editing. A copy editor is somebody who makes sure you don't use semicolons the wrong way. (laughs) And I have one of those. 
we've never met, but and I don't use her for my blog, but for the books I've written recently, it's a pleasure. You send a word file to someone, and it comes back with the little things fixed. A line editor is much harder to find. A line editor is somebody who can think the way you want to think and say, let's rearrange these six sentences. If you can find somebody like that who you trust, you should work with them forever. A project editor is priceless. A project editor might deserve more of the project than you get. The project editor is the person who says to Jerry Lewis, don't make that movie about the clown. (laughs) And that one one sentence is worth, what, $10 million. Um, I'm always on the search for that. I've been lucky enough to have a couple partners and semi-partners through the years that have been insightful enough and wise enough and kind enough to speak up about the projects. Mm. Um, But in general, you will be disappointed. It's really hard to do that for someone else. So therefore, you better get good at doing it for yourself. Do you still write book proposals or have you written them and any wisdom to share on the book proposal? So I haven't written a book in over a year. The last one is called What to Do When It's Your Turn, and I published it myself online. Beautiful book, yes. Thank you. So I have pushed myself not to be in the book business, though I dearly love the book business. So I can't tell you what is working right this minute. I can give you a couple thoughts. The first one is this. It's really hard to have empathy for the acquiring book editor, but you need to try. Yeah. And that means understand that, I'll use the female pronoun here, understand that she has to read 20 of these proposals today, that she only gets to pick one book this week or one book this month, and that there's a lot of social capital on the line, not just money. So the purpose of the book proposal is not to prove that you have written a great book. The purpose of the book proposal is to you make it unbelievably obvious that if she doesn't buy this book, she will regret it. And <laughs> most awesome. people can't write a book good enough to deserve a book proposal like that. But when a book proposal like that truthfully makes it clear that someone else is going to publish this book and you will regret it, those book proposals sell in two days and there is no challenge. It always works. But the hard work is making that part true. And the way you make that part true is writing a book that people can't forget, writing a book that changes people, that they can't not talk about. And we try to avoid that and instead write a better book proposal, but I don't think that's the way to do it. I think the way to do it is to write freely and often, to share it and share it and share it for free until one day you discover that strangers are asking you for that thing you wrote, then you know you something. Mm. Why have you pushed yourself to not be in book publishing for now? There are a couple issues. The first one is more and more people are not reading books. And, you know, as soon as you get to put a book on an electronic device and the choice is read the book or check your email, email wins every time. But (laughs) beyond that, bookstore has been savaged, brutalized, and destroyed in general in our culture. I have noticed that people will come up to me and others and say, you should congratulate me. I finished your book. Right? No one goes up to Steven Spielberg and says, congratulate me, I finished watching Bridge of Spies all the way to the end. <laughs> the thing is, books for many people are either something they never learned to read or they're viewed as a chore. Mm. And my job, I think, is not to make books. My job is to make change. 
So if I can run the Alt-MBA and change the lives of 100 people forever, that might be a better use of my time than writing another book that gets read by not as many people as I would like because books used to be this perfect distribution mechanism that had a role in our culture, and I feel it fading away, and that makes me sad, but I don't think I can fix it all by myself. And your blog is similar. I mean, it's filling that hole, don't you think, with as many readers as you have and as often as you're writing? Yeah, so I write every day, and I have about a million readers, I think, guessing, and I can get under their skin, drip by drip by drip, day <laughs> by day, whereas a book is more like a sledgehammer, where you have to like get someone all at once and hope that you get in there. If I have an idea that a blog post can do justice to, it's always going to be a blog post. And the only thing that is moving me to make a book is if I don't think I can make the impact in less than a thousand words. Oh, that's interesting. I got to roll that one up and smoke it, right? (laughs) Because I'm on the precipice myself. Next book, focus on video. Huh, Hmm. juicy. Let's take an intermission. Seth, this is our multiple choice Q&A. Here we go. You ready? I guess. Leonard Cohen or Rumi? Leonard Cohen. Vinyl or MP3? Vinyl. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. Um, Pen or pencil? Well, it depends. Is it a black wing? Is it sharpened (laughs) with one of those bespoke Japanese sharpeners? Twice the pressure, half the speed. Twice the speed, half the pressure. (laughs) If it's a black wing, I'm all pencil. But if not, then I need those pilot gel Japanese pens. Ah, all the proteins. I want to interrupt here while you're, I'm I'm interrupting. I don't think you need to wait till you're in the mood to write, but I do think having tools that give you a Proustian boost Mm. that reminds you of what it is to do your best work are critical, at least for me. So Mm. that if I'm starting a new project, I go to Muji, I get the big size spiral bound, then I get just the right pencil or the pen and if I'm touching it, it's only for that. No grocery lists are going in that thing. That <laughs> gets the juices flowing. I learned this from Chip Connolly, who's just awesome. I'm with you. Okay, last one. And I'm asking this because your woman, bakery, croissant or scone? Um, I don't eat flour or butter, so I'm busted. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I thought it was like gluten-free options would be enough, but you really go on the distance. Mm. Well, the by the way, bakery serves no croissant for obvious reasons because it's dairy-free and gluten-free. There is a scone every once in a while, <laughs> but I'm not that, you know, mostly I think I'd have to go with the brownie. All right. Favorite book as a young man, favorite book you're currently reading? Oh, boy. So many books changed my life growing up an obscure book called The Book of Est, the original guerrilla marketing. And then I got to write several books with Jay Levinson, may he rest in peace. A book called The Republic of Tea, when I was a struggling entrepreneur, out of print, really special. Mm. Um, Snow Crash, which completely changed the way I think about so many things. Books today, well, last year I read a book called Whiskey Tango Foxtrot that's hysterical (laughs) and brilliant and funny, funny, funny. But I also find myself picking up more and more books that I've read before, like The Art of Possibility by Ben and Roz Zander mm. and Pressfield's The War of Art. Oh. If you read those two books twice, your life will change. I promise. Oh, yeah. And Do the Work. I love Do the Work, Pressfield's next one. And Turning Pro, the one after that, that trilogy right there. 
Uh, well, I will tell him you said it. I published Do the Work, and he did not want to write it, and I persisted until he said yes. I did not I, know that. It turned into a gateway drug for the War of Art, which is why <laughs> I published it. No kidding. Had no idea. Seth, let's talk about creative rhythm, because everybody listening to this wants to know, what's the how of being so prolific? So we hear you write every day. I can attest to the fact that you are like an email ninja. Your response rate is high and quick. And how do you do it? What does a day look like? Okay, people do not like my answer because it's extremely simple. Here we go. (laughs) I don't go to any meetings and I don't watch television. So I save seven to eight hours a day over (laughs) most people. In those seven or eight hours a day, I do a couple things. One, I write like I talk. If you write like you talk, you never have to deal with writer's block because you never have talker's block. And there's something enormously powerful about blogging every day. I think everyone should blog every day, even if you need to do it under another name. Just do it. Because if you know that another post is due tomorrow, another post will present itself. Mm. It just will. Number two is I don't use Twitter. I don't use Facebook. I'm not willing to get sucked into the maelstrom of social media just so somebody else can make a profit. Instead, I have made a decision about what I want to accomplish, and I picked the channels to do it in, and I have stuck with them even when they were hard because there's a dip. And trying a lot of little things doesn't nearly pay off as much as sticking with just a few big things. So when you add all of those things up, I feel mostly unemployed most days because (laughs) my job is to notice things and to engage with people and to earn their trust and to use their attention wisely. Not in the business of publishing another book, not in the business of booking another speech. I'm in the business of teaching and whatever that leads to next seems to be okay with me. And every once in a while I have to make a hard decision. Will I do that or won't I do that? But the goal hasn't changed in 20 years, which is how can I build a platform where I get the privilege of whispering to people who want to hear from me about stuff they're interested in? Okay, so Seth, what would you say then for the listener who does not have a name yet, they haven't written anything public yet, and they're being told that they need to have social media numbers, they need to have a presence online. What do you say to those people? So that was me a while ago. And the answer, I think, is a blog post I wrote called First 10. And the thesis is this. Tell 10 people. Give it to 10 people. Find 10 people who will take what you have to offer because surely you have 10 people. If they tell other people, it'll spread. If they don't, it probably wasn't that good. Repeat. (laughs) Rewrite. Right. I mean, the fact is no one is entitled to be able to teach. No one is entitled to be able to write. Well, you can do both those things. You're not entitled that people show up to receive them. And if you want to get good at it, do it. Don't wait until you're anointed before you do it. Mm -hmm. Do it, and then you'll get anointed because you keep doing it. You keep feeding the community. One person, five people, ten people. If you can influence or impact or change five people, they will ask you to do it again. And the fact that the market is noisy is not the same as the fact that your work is mediocre. That (laughs) mediocre work is mediocre work. And we have a choice instead to dig super deep 
and bring stuff to the table that is worth talking about. And it's not easy, and it won't happen right away. The first year I was a book packager, I sold my first book the first day, and then I got 800 rejections in a row. 800 letters with stamps, one at a time, (laughs) saying, this is terrible, you are never going to amount to anything, go away. Oh my God. But you learn from that, because you don't keep doing the same thing again and again. You say, well, what didn't work about that? Let me try something else. And if you care enough, you'll keep showing up. Now, when you say 800, who were those rejections coming from? Uh, I wasn't spamming the world. These were rejections from real publishers in New York whose job was to buy real books from people who wanted to make them. There were rejections for books like How to Hypnotize Your Friends and Make Them Act Like Chickens. (laughs) And another book, which I'm still proud of called the Fortune Cookie Construction Set. Because at the time, you couldn't get a cookbook with a fortune cookie recipe. So this page one was the recipe. Oh, wow. And the rest of the pages were little perforated fortunes that you could, after you made the cookie, take the fortune and put it in the cookie and give it to your loved ones. Nice. 30 different publishers rejected that. Wow. So did you have 800 rejections in a row, you said, after that first one? How long of a time period was that? 13 months. Okay. Because Stephen was telling I, I, us it took 17 years to sell his first one. And then after that, didn't he say, Danielle, that each book only had one bidder? <laughs> and so his point was that resistance is the norm. So you're just validating that point all over again. Well, resistance is internal. But yes, skepticism, uh, the unwillingness to adopt the new thing yeah. is the norm. I picked the book business not the toy business, because people in the book business buy ideas for a living. There are very few other businesses like that. If I was starting today, I wouldn't be able to do that because the industry doesn't have a shortage like it did when I was trying to make books. But the idea was that you needed to earn trust. You could buy attention with a stamp, but you couldn't get trust until you had something under your feet. So by showing up and learning and each proposal better than the one before, each interaction I had better than the one before, when I showed up with my book on spot and stain removal, uh, (laughs) someone bought it because they believed that I could deliver a book on spot and stain removals that would sell 150,000 copies. And once I've proven that, then I had enough trust to try again and try again. And we had some very big wins and some epic, epic failures. (laughs) But the people who were my partners signed up for both. Hello, listeners. This is a segue with Danielle and Linda. And this is a perfect time to tell you about your big, beautiful book plan, which is a digital program we created to help you create proposals that not only will help you get the deal, but help you see that your book is a business. And you can head to yourbigbeautifulbookplan.com to learn everything you absolutely need to know about it. Seth, can you unpack for us the difference between leadership and management as we come into the final finish line here? Okay, management is what we call it when we try to get the people around us to do what they did yesterday, but faster Mm -hmm. and cheaper to meet spec. (laughs) Management is important. Management keeps the world moving, but it's Mm -hmm. not leadership. Leadership is what we call it when someone stands up and says, I know where we need to go. I'm not sure how to get there. Follow me. Leadership requires enrollment. It requires people who will say, I get the culture of what you are building. I understand what is in it for all of us to get to where we are going. I am willing to make mistakes along the way. 
Leadership is way scarier in our culture than management, and they are often confused, but they shouldn't be. Now, leadership to me is also about leading yourself, and you talk about how successful people have fear but talk themselves over the fear. So whether you're leading yourself or other people, is there anything you can offer about how you talk yourself over your fears? I've successfully used fear as a compass. If there are two things I'm thinking of doing and one of them is frightening, but it passes my MBA strategic filter, and that I am frightened of it not because it's going to lead me down a path of destruction, but because it might work. Because we fear things that might work because then we're going to be given new responsibility and new authority. So by following that compass, I've been able to make a ruckus. The key is understanding the general direction you're trying to go. I have never set out to make a lot of money. I've never set out to be famous. And I have done a little of each of those things, but not anything like what people off the charts have done. I've set out instead to make a difference to people who are on the same path as me. And if I can keep at that path of doing work that's worth talking about, treating people with dignity and respect, understanding that not everyone gets it, and being kind to the people who don't get it, but not needing to change who I am so that they will like what I'm doing, I get to do it again. It's really challenging to understand the difference between the person who doesn't get it and the generous skeptic, because it's the generous skeptic, the one who takes the time to show you where you're not quite right. The person who's willing to be a project editor in the moment, we need to listen super carefully to those people, but really ignore the people who just want the world to be like it was yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Seth, let's end on joy. So your greatest, most frequent place of joy, where does it come from for you? Oh, it's my family. Mm. Always, always the heart. This has been so nourishing, and I've got so much to think about. Your mindfulness is a gift. You're like a much more articulate Yoda. (laughs) Even though Yoda was very efficient. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, your wisdom, deep respect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Seth. Namaste. Thank you both for doing this. I really appreciate the effort you're putting into it and your kindness as well. Mm, Thank you. Love, love. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, thank you, everybody, for listening, for being here, for being present. What we know is that your reviews actually count because this is the age of social media, and that's how you rock it on iTunes. So if you got something out of this, and you'd have to be in a coma to not get something out of this interview with Seth Godin, please go to our page on iTunes and give it all the stars you are moved to do, and we send you love and gratitude, and keep writing and making your way in the world with your own voice. To hear more of our chats and find out how we can support you on your writing journey, head over to beautifulwriterspodcast.com, where you can subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Danielle and I are so grateful you've spent your time with us. Until next time, write on. Write on.